All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. On this episode of After the Battle Campfire, I talk with Dave Karras. Dave is a retired Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer who flew drug interdiction missions over the Caribbean, did rescues off the coast of Massachusetts, and so much more. Some of us see the Coast Guard in one fashion, but this will change it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, I'm back again with my friend Dave Karras. Yeah, I remember from last time. We did a great hour and a half long podcast last time. Unfortunately, Zoom ate it. So Dave is a retired Coast Guardsman. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing okay. How are you? Good, good. So um, it's actually kind of funny we're doing it now. We are both in states that are pretty much wide open. So that's a good thing. Um, let's, instead of rehashing everything from last time, let's just talk about why did you join the Coast Guard over other services? Um, at the time when it, when I um, was done with uh, college and I was looking to join the military, uh, there was really nothing going on in the world. Well, or I will say that the U.S. was not involved in anything. Uh, hadn't been in a while. So the other military branches were sort of just existing. Um, and uh, I was, you know, 21, a little over 21. And um, my family background, I was very active. I did all the sports. <clears throat> my dad was a uh, Green Beret. Um, he was one of the first actually. And so I grew up around that kind of excitement. And uh, he worked with Green Beret um, small boat crew members when he was in Vietnam. They were some of the ones that used to put them on the beaches in, in jungles and stuff, and then come a week later and pick them up. And the funny story is, if the Coast Guard guys, he used to call them McHale's Navy, but if they came to pick them up at a certain time on an exact night, they were always there waiting for my dad's patrol. The Navy guys, you couldn't count on them. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so they actually had Coast Guard uh, doing special ops inserts back in Vietnam? Yeah. So they had Coast Guard flying Jolly Green Giants in Vietnam. Um, they had Coast Guard doing Riverine stuff. And uh, they had patrol craft up and down the beaches. So. They used to fire on uh, VC patrols from a uh, hundred yards off the beach. Oh, they had nice. they had patrol boats, eighty-seven foot patrol boats. They had other things there too, but I know they had eighty-seven foot patrol boats with uh, 
M60s, 50 calibers, and they rigged up an 81 millimeter mortar to fire were like a cannon and it was extremely accurate and it was the neatest thing and the navy saw it and was like oh hell we want that so the navy copied it and started putting it on their um river boats that's a great thing about the marine corps and apparently the coast guard is when they're working for us big navy um we don't give you a lot but you sure as hell can figure out a lot to do with the scraps that we do give you yeah, well, our budget's kind of small. Um, there's more police in New York City than there are Coast Guard around the world. That is so crazy to think. I think, yeah, I think you said that last thing. time. Yeah. yeah. And that's also a statement to how many cops there are just in New York City alone as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a large area. Yeah. Um, and the Coast Guard, I think we... Uh, back to your original question. So... That's why I joined the Coast Guard. Um, I used to drive to campus from where I lived in Fayetteville. That's where Fort Bragg is, so home of the 82nd Airborne. Um, my, my dad's last four years in the Army, he was the 82nd Airborne Inspector General. Um, so we always stayed around the Fayetteville, Fort Bragg, North Carolina area. And I used to go to North Carolina State University. My degree was polymer chemistry. And um, so a shortcut to drive from Fayetteville to Raleigh used to be, I used to drive through Fort Bragg, through the base, and then down these two lane roads that go through all the huge drop zones out there. And this part of North Carolina, and especially that area of Fort Bragg is very flat. They call it the Sand Hills. And there's all these <clears throat> low, scrub pines it's um and it gets hot out there uh in the summertime the uh feels like temperature is always over 120 and God. it's not like arizona so you have humidity it's not dry air that's why that temperature is so is so miserable and i used to have to um switch into a single lane sometimes for about 12 to 15 miles because you'd see these 82nd Airborne guys out there training, they would jump, okay? They have to jump a minimum of once a month to get their jump paid. But so there was usually guys jumping every day out there. Um, and then part of their training was to walk out of the woods and then hump it about 20 miles down these paved roads, straight, straight paved roads but with their full field gear on, full uniform, helmets. That's back when they still had the Vietnam era flak jackets. They, they still wore those up until Desert Storm. They had to have their sleeves rolled down, pants and everything. And it was so hot, every five miles, there would be a fire truck parked on the side of the road with the fire hose out just to hose these guys down. Damn. And my dad said, you know, if you join one of these other military branches, you're gonna, that's all you're gonna do. There's nothing going on in the world. You're going to be doing that probably once a week and that's gonna be your life. Um, so there's gonna be really no purpose. And um, if you join the Navy, you're gonna be tooling around, 
either in a submarine or on an aircraft carrier, probably because they hold more. They can always stick you on one of those. And you're gonna be bebopping around out in the ocean and then coming back and doing nothing. And he talked me into the Coast Guard and he said, you join the Coast Guard, you're gonna be doing something every week, multiple times during the week, sometimes multiple times during a 24 hour period. And he was right. So that's what I did. And um, it's been great. It was great. You know, I never bothered to ask you the last time we talked, because I forgot you said you had your degree before you went in. Did you ever look at a commissioning program? So the, um, I don't know about the other branches, but usually they won't uh, send you to OCS unless your your degree is something they can use it, in the Coast Guard. Right. Because it's so small. They don't go like, um, I know in the other branches, even if you just have an associates, you qualify for OCS. Um, most enlisted guys in the Coast Guard have at least two years of college. Oh, really? That's why it's so hard to get in. It's it's small. It's tough to get in. It's the toughest branch to get in, and you have to have the highest that it requires the highest ASVAB scores out of all the branches of military. Um, yeah, you got to have college level intelligence just to get in there as an enlisted person. Um, so. When I when I was uh, finally good to go for OCS, that's when um, I don't know if you remember when uh, President Clinton was president. Yeah, and they they did the uh, I can't remember the name of his his uh, presidential um, wasn't an act, but it was a uh, what do you call it when a president signs executive orders executive order um, where they tried to make it public policy too, where every place of work had to have a certain percentage of women, certain percentage of minorities. Oh, like a, like an affirmative action type thing. Yeah. Maybe that's what it was called. I can't recall the name of it, but um, it was deemed unconstitutional and actually against, it was deemed discriminatory. So it wasn't passed. However, it wasn't discriminatory to federal employment, okay? They can make rules for federal, yeah, for whatever. So they could enforce it on, on private industry, but they could make it happen So um, in federal government, So which they did. So I was nearing um, the 27-year-old limit for OCS. I'm turning my cell phone volume off. And um, right when I was supposed to go, all of a sudden they they put a hold on everybody. And for two years, the Coast Guard was just filling it with nothing but women and minorities, just straight, mostly women, whether they had no whether they had college or not. Oh, crazy! Most of them did it. If they wrote, they had to have higher ASVAB scores, though. I mean, really maxed out. They couldn't be, you know bottom of the barrel, but they they did it to fill a quota. So the Coast Guard was given a quota and instead of kind of mixing them in over a certain amount of time, the Coast Guard said, fine, this is how many you want us to have. We're going to just go ahead and jam them all in there now. 
basically. Yeah. And then I, and it was right when I was turning 27. So I missed out. And um, yeah, I was a little bit bitter, but it wasn't to, I wouldn't have done it to make money. Otherwise, if, I, if that's the reason I would have gotten out. Um, I was getting flight pay. I was also getting danger pay because I was doing anti-narcotics. Um, I would go down island with the DEA to chase dopers and we would get 1400 bucks for two weeks of that operation on top of our pay. That's not bad. On top of our flight pay and base pay. And we lived off base, so we were getting BAH and per diem. So I was getting paid pretty Very damn well, well. Yeah. for my rate. Um, so it wasn't for money. Um, so I stayed in regardless. Yeah. So that's one, back to your thing. So that's the reason why there was a lag for me to go to OCS. They didn't need my specialty immediately, but I had college. So I was qualified, but I had to wait. And then um, a uh, presidential order kind of screwed me and, and a bunch of other people too. I think like um, hundred some odd people. Yeah. Really? Mostly white men. That's nuts. So um, when we talked last time on the fictional podcast, we talked about boot camp and how it was one of the hardest boot camps next to Marine Corps boot camp. So it turns wow. out two days later, I saw a Business Insider video on Coast Guard boot camp. And I would say, I haven't seen anything. I really don't pay attention to the Army. But yeah, they would like to be a little demented in Coast Guard boot camp from what you could see. Yeah, you need, they don't want you in a helicopter hovering over 40 foot waves in a storm and then some of your electronics flaming out and quite possibly an engine and you're trying to pick somebody up and then all of a sudden you lose your mind. You, you gotta be pretty mentally tough. So they really push your buttons. Um, when I went through the, uh, they were the drill instructors, they call them company commanders. I don't know I, if they call them drill instructors I think Navy. they were called, uh, Navy used to be company commanders, now recruit division commanders or something okay. stupid like we that. We called them company commanders. They went to um, Marine Drill Instructor School. So what we were basically going through, it was like all our company commanders were basically Marine Drill Instructors in a different uniform. Because um, that's what they learned was marine drill instructor action and it was it was a lot like that yeah so being a naval service um in boot camp for the navy they emphasize a lot on firefighting and emergency procedures we had a yeah. firefighter simulator was that something i didn't see that in that business insider video but is that something that they oh again, yeah just because you're on a ship and out in the middle of the ocean yeah so we did some of that and did you guys do uh, any of like the tear gas chamber or any yeah, of that? Yeah, we definitely did that. How, how did you react to the gas chamber? I always ask. I was fine. I knew what to expect. You know, my I had friends that had joined the Coast Guard. Um, my brother was in the Coast Guard, joined like three or four years before me. 
Um, yeah, it didn't bother me. I mean, it sucked when I, um, I was always getting, we had something when I used, when I went to my small boat station before I got in aviation. So we were basically law enforcement. One of the things we carried on our gun belts was a stuff called curb. And now everybody uses pepper spray. This was not pepper spray. It was worse. Oh, um, and um, I don't know what it was made out of. It, it was a uh, it was a man-made chemical, but you spray it on somebody like pepper spray. But we used to have to get tested with it every six months, so we know what it was like in case somebody took it from us and sprayed us, or you know, one of our own people sprayed us by accident. So they used to spray it on Q-tips, put it under our eyes. So I was always getting blasted with some sort of chemical. Wow. And um, learning to try to function with it and draw my weapon or, you know, charge the, the shotgun and load it and, and all that stuff. Yeah, there's the um, right down the street for me here is the uh, Navy Master at Arms uh, A school. And I've, I've been by there when they've done some of their training like that. They also did the dog handling. So they'll spray them and have to. Yeah. Not fun. I, I did NBC as a corpsman for quite a while and got gassed way too many times. But oh. um, yeah, there's a difference. So I think between CS gas and what you're talking about, I think that's yeah. a whole different pain threshold. The, the gas was only in boot camp. That was it. Um, the, the curb was uh, that was interesting. It was in my later years, we'd gone, you know, everybody, civilian police, federal, everybody, the DEA that I worked with, everybody went to pepper spray. The pepper spray wasn't as bad. It sucks. I mean, it's pepper spray. Don't get, don't get me wrong. It's not good. But that, that curb stuff, man, that was, oof, that was rough. So did you ever have to use it in real life? No. Um, so the reason why I think we met, I talked about this last time, the reason why the Coast Guard isn't in the Department of Defense is it goes back to an old constitutional law from, if you think about the reason why we broke away from the British, you know, there's the, it's called the Posse Comitatus. Um, you know, the British soldiers used to just be able to go into houses without warrants, okay? Or act as police force. A lot of countries, there's, their police are their, basically sort of their, their military. For example, when I worked with the Bahamians, they have a version of their police they call the DEU, Drug Enforcement Unit, or Strike Force, which is almost like paramilitary. And it's kind of like their military but they're police, so they can go into houses and stuff. And people are like, well, that's not right. And I have to remind them, they're British. They've been doing this since 1700. This is one of the reasons we why we got away from them. Well, there's a, there's a lot of that it, even in Europe, I think. Yeah. Um, I'm like, like have... they still do this. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> but you can't come from our country and go into other countries, especially if you're a tourist, and think, they they follow U.S. laws. You have to be careful. No, very true. And I, I, I think I think what you're talking about, especially with the posse cumitatis, I think that's almost unique to us. I remember, right? 
So, so what we did was um, one of the things we did when we got away from the British was is our military are not allowed to conduct law enforcement. They can't go in houses, go in cars, even with a warrant. They, they can't do any law enforcement. Um, I always remind, I have people remember Hurricane Katrina with the 82nd Airborne in there, those huge rafts or going through the city and everything. Um, they were not armed with anything with bullets. Um, a lot of people didn't know that. They weren't allowed to go into houses or on private property or anything. They were there as a show of force for and incompetence, but in reality, constitutionally and legally, they weren't allowed to do anything. Well, wasn't that one of the problems with Katrina was because if I remember right, the governor has to request federal assistance for troops. Yeah, but that's that's a major, major change of that's you got to get congressional support. But I but I, there, I always... there's a problem with that. There's 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 still a debate whether the president can do that or Congress has to approve it. And where the gray area is is the president will send it, send troops because Congress may take more than 24 hours to decide if it's okay. And then if they say, no, it's not constitutional, then he has to pull them back. Well, they were already there for 48 hours. So there's an issue, but he doesn't need to, to, because here's how it works. You have the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard is your military branch that can do law enforcement as long as we don't shift over to the DOD. So the Coast Guard with state and federal law enforcement and county and city and all, they were doing law enforcement in Katrina. There's Coast Guard doing law enforcement right now up and down the rivers of this country, Mississippi River, in the deserts of this country. There's, um, when I was stationed in North Carolina, we used to fly deep inland and look for marijuana fields. No other branch of the military is allowed to do that. National Guards, uh, state National Guards will fly and do those operations, but they can't send anybody down to do the bust. Coast Guard can't. So whenever you see on TV, the news or anything, or on the internet, if a Navy shop, a Navy ship stops um, a drug boat or a narco submarine or something like that, the small boat that goes over to make the arrest is loaded with Coast Guard guys. So we have a, an MSRT, Marine. Um, it's like a sort of like our special forces. They're stationed on that Navy ship, temporary duty um, okay. until the ship comes back. So we got Coasties on ships um, off the coast of Somalia because of the pirates, um, on both sides of South America, Central America, Mexico, like crazy in the Caribbean, because sometimes some Navy destroyers or, or really fast frigates or whatever are sent to go do law enforcement. So they'll stop and um, 
you know, get a, a narco sub or a drug boat and, and get it to stop, but they can't make the arrest. So they have to put Coasties in the small boat over the side on the little Navy small boat. And they're the ones that head over to the narco boat and actually make the bus. So even outside of the US borders, it's the Coast Guard that makes the arrest because that way there's not gonna be a problem with um, some international legal issue. Oh, okay. Because I've, I've always thought that the Navy had some sort of authority to detain ships once you get out past the territorial waters. You have to have a Coast Guard guy make the arrest. Oh, okay. So let's jump back real quick. Um, after boot camp, you said that you went up to, I want to say, the Northeast. Yeah, it was off the Cape Cod. So it was a, it was a uh, rescue boat station. So I was on a, um, I was rough duty. It was cold up there. <clears throat> and those, we'd get out on the, um, a 44 foot motor lifeboat. And I don't know if any of your uh, people who are listening or watching this will Google it sometime, but these things can take 40 foot waves on the bow and like 30 off the stern. And they're made to be just, they're, they're real heavy down at the, key, the keel, but they'll flip over and you're kind of exposed. So you're out on the deck and you have these SAR belts on and you clip onto the boat in different spots and you hold your breath and it flips over and it usually writes itself. The longest ones ever stayed under was 18 seconds. So they write themselves pretty quick. Um, and then it comes back up and then you can continue on with your search and rescue case. Um, so is there training for that or is that, do you try you, you by get, fire? You get the training there. There is for the coxswains, there's a motor lifeboat school in Cape Disappointment, Washington. There's really a place called Cape Disappointment. There's a reason why it's, you should see the, <laughs> Google that sometime and look at those YouTubes and watch and look at the boats, the training. But you can also be a 44 foot motor lifeboat coxswain and get training from the guys who went through that school and, and go out and do these SAR cases without having to have gone through that school. And SAR being search and rescue. Search and rescue. And um, I didn't go through that school. It was uh, OJT. I, so as far as... The real world, kid. So as far as like even knowing to buckle, I, obviously there's a lot of OJT that happens in the military. Uh, you show up fresh out of boot camp and here's how you do X, Y, or Z. But I used, to have, I used to have ice crystals off my face and come back sometimes 12, 14 hours out on that damn lifeboat. <laughs> How was the first time you flipped or rolled? I don't know. I, I'm huge. I'm, I never get, a, I'm not afraid of things. It, um, it's kind of neat. You know, feel safe on those things. You can't sink them. They're airtight. You close everything up. You close hatches. And everything, they're airtight above high. I mean, they write themselves. There's never been one that um, the hole is uh, 
one and uh, one and three quarters inch core 10 steel. I've seen pictures of them where they've been up on rocks after the tide's gone out and they just where it's crashed up on rocks and uh, they just waited until the tide came in and just, yeah, they're, they're invincible. So now they, they retired those boats and they have a 47 foot one and a 52 footer. Um, so they, they, they still use boats that can handle that. So I wasn't afraid when you're on something like that. You, I don't know how to explain it. I, there's no fear. It's cold. At least where I was, it was cold. We're, there would be times in the middle of the night with wind chill. We used to have to, <clears throat> on radio watch, send the weather every three hours. And I would record weather and get it down. I, I remember the coldest I ever saw was minus 56 degrees Fahrenheit. On the water? In the, in the air, like I right outside the station. Oh, okay. So you weren't you weren't out on the water at. Like, oh yeah, we go out in that. Oh, those man. fishermen don't stop fishing. That's how they make a living. Oh, okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah, and yeah, we go out in that. So that boat, because it was steel, could break ice out of the harbor, and then when you get out in the sound, there's such a strong current that there would be ice flows and such big waves that it wouldn't freeze like you know. South Pole or North Pole, there's, you know, 10 to 30 foot waves. You're not going to get sheets of ice in an ocean like that. True. You get ice on your face. And we wore survival suits with um, called Mustang suits and uh, like a, a wet suit underneath. Them. Now they wear dry suits. We didn't have those. It sure would have been nice. But um, part of our training in the daytime is, uh, when they get the two duty sections swap out every Wednesday is when the water, ocean water freezes at 28 degrees because of the salinity and other minerals, doesn't freeze at 32. So when the water would hit 32 degrees, they'd measure it at 32 degrees down at the harbor. We'd all get on the boat in wetsuits, long wetsuits, which you can still get wet in. And we'd go offshore and we'd take turns jumping in the water. So we'd get that shot. So we know what to expect, um, especially if we needed to swim in the water to rescue somebody, but mostly if the boat flipped over, then the boat would practice a man overboard and come pick us up. So usually five people would jump off at a time. Then you would do it again. The first time you jump in, we'd have these things so tight, you would stay dry for about five seconds and then it would start to seep in where the zippers were, and that was okay around your legs and arms, but when it's the, it would seep in right in the center of your chest, the whole idea is you're not supposed to swim because you don't want to pump cold water through your wetsuit. But, but what you want to do is be the last person to jump off the boat because what they, what they do is one of the last things they do is throw a life ring overboard to mark the position. So if you're the last person to jump off the boat, you're gonna be the first person they pick up. Also, I swam my ass off to that life ring. In my mind, I'm thinking, I know I'm not so supposed to swim, but I'm cold as hell. And the 10 yards of swim distance I'm going to make struggling in this water, heading towards that life ring in that boat, 
is 10 yards less, I'm going to be in this water. It was that bad. Wow. Uh, Every winter. So when you guys did rescues, was it mainly man overboard or do you ever have to pull up alongside uh, a ship in distress? Oh, we'd pull up along boats sinking, put dewatering pumps on them, go down below. There were times where there was once where, you know, medevacs, there was a, a family, a husband and wife, a little kid, and the husband, big sailboat, huge one. He was hitting the head with a boom. Ooh. He was knocked out cold. The wife caught us on the um, on the radio, and they were dead in the water, floating, and it was about 10-foot seas. So we put him on the small boat with the wife and the boy. The kid, the little boy was like five years old. And uh, the coxswain said, all right, Dave, follow us in. And here I am. It's a motor. So we had the motor started up on the sailboat. So I'm driving the sailboat for three hours following our surf boat getting the crap beat out of me out on an open deck until we got close to the jetty. Um, and it was so tight for such a giant sailboat. I stopped and then they took me in a side tow. So you would even drive other people's boats. I mean, really? it's interesting. I watched a fishing boat sink right in front of my eyes. Um, boat fires, dock fires, then that's not, then it include the whole other part of the world was doing law enforcement where you would board boats with your pistols on and your, we carried a Remington 870 shotgun. We left the M16 with a guy on our small boat and you would go do boardings and look through the boat for dope and stuff. I mean, it was one day you could be doing, in the morning you could be doing a search and rescue case. Two hours later, you could be, looking for drugs on a boat. It was, it was neat. It's a neat that's, job. That's actually kind of cool. So how far out did you guys typically go? On those small boats? Um, I was, a, I was near a bunch of other smaller islands. So I was always close to some land unless I went south of the island. And um, personally, I didn't get that far away from land probably no more than 30 miles but i when i got into when i went to aviation school and graduated i went right back up to cape cod and had been flying in helicopters offshore in the middle of the night in oceans the seas that big and from other small boat stations um and seeing small boats 100 miles offshore Damn. in the middle of the night. Usually you take two crews because it's going to be a long, they'll be out there for almost 24 hours fighting those seas to get out and then back in. And um, you're getting beat up pretty bad and you're wet and you're cold. So, you know, one crew, you'll take turns driving and, and crewing the boat, but uh, they go out pretty far. So you had talked about being, um, I'm going to probably get your rate wrong, but aviation electronics guy. Yeah. Um, how was that school for you? It was about a year long. Um, it was uh, high level electronics. Um, like uh, when you graduated, 
you have about a two-year electrical or electronics hardware degree, minus if you went to college and took English classes and electives and all that. But you, so if you went to college for um, electrical engineering, or now it would be um, hardware engineering, and only took nothing but the core courses, it would be equal to a two-year associate's degree. Oh, so okay. intense, you had to ace, you had to make 100 on every test, you usually had a test every day, sometimes more than one. Um, a lot of practical work, always soldering and troubleshooting and repair. And yeah, it was pretty intense. It was all kinds of communications, radios, sensor systems, radars. So you, you, you not only had to know how to operate them, but you knew you had to know how to repair them too. Oh yeah. Down to component level, troubleshoot it to the component on paper, um, prove it, go out. So you would leave the lab and um, an instructor would go through and mess up your radio somehow, maybe clip the lead. These guys were good too. They could clip the lead on a transistor or on an IC chip or something. And I swear with a magnifying glass, it would be hard to spot it. <laughs> so you couldn't just go in there and pull up circuit cards and go, that's the problem. You were putting, you were putting probes on that thing. I mean, you could be in there for an hour and actually legit troubleshooting it down a component level. And yeah, you had to ace everything. It's pretty intense. So when you graduated, um, you went to, you said you went back up to the Northeast? Yeah, um, I went back up to Air Station Cape Cod that's on Otis Air Force Base. And um I was an, an HH-3F helicopter avionicsman. That's the Air Force version of the H-3. They had a ramp in the back and everything. You could drive a Jeep up in it. Um, and what that position was is I was the, I had a bank of radios in front of me, HF radios, all kinds of radios. And I was also a navigator. So I learned how to navigate on avi aviation charts, plotting them. Um, we didn't have GPS yet when I first started. So we still had Loran, we had Omega systems. So, um, and I'd use the TACAN and VOR. Uh, these acronyms are, they're just, instead of me getting into detail, they're, they're navigation aids. Oh, okay, okay. The emit signals that you can use to help you navigate. When you get far offshore, you don't have those. So it was basically me dead reckoning. Um, you know, knowing the, the wind on the helicopter, airspeed, I could, I had a, like a, I should have brought it out, but I had a thing called a whiz wheel. So I would look at our airspeed and figure out where we were. And then every 15 minutes, look at our airspeed again, and then turn this little wheel and write on it with a little pencil and not get, it's, it's kind of complex, but draw a vector on my chart with a pencil and everything, and I would be able to get it. I would be able to plot a course and get my timing two to two and a half hours offshore in the middle of the night to within a minute, probably within a mile. 
just using that old fashioned dead reckoning. If, if you weren't farting around and paying attention and sticking with it. But I mean, that's, that's what I was doing the whole time was just, and if there was any change in the helicopter course that the pilots did for any reason or altitude, I was plotting that. So I was busy. So when they tend to, when people graduate ATs, avionics, they tend to be the navigators on the H3 helicopters and the radio operators and also on the C-130 aircraft. And we had Falcon jets at the time. So when you, they send them back, they, they kind of usually sent them back to the same areas that they were previously stationed at on boats or ships, because we had to learn how to navigate Dead Reckon on all those uh, lifeboats and ships and everything. So we already knew the area and we already had experience plotting courses all around it. I already oh, okay. had every island memorized. I could hear on the radio um, the number of a buoy off of some beach, be able to look on a map and figure it out within a second. So it helped with uh, training. So it was efficient for the Coast Guard. Wow, that, that's actually a really smart idea. I don't know if they, they might still do that if you're going to a C-130 unit. Um, you don't, I don't think they did reckon much on H-60 helicopters. We got couple of GPS and, and other systems. I still carry the chart because the GP, GPS doesn't tell you if you're going to run into a 4,000 foot tower, you still need the chart to show you where that is. Right. No, that makes total sense. And so. <laughs> the, the chance that you may lose GPS or some uh, weather yeah. phenomenon. So did you, um, did you, what was your uh, flight time like as far as like, how would you guys go out? Would you guys just be on um, alert or did you do patrols? Well, I was qualified. I was dual qualified. So I was H3s and I was a sh short time on Falcon jets. And then I came to Clearwater, Florida and it was back on H3s, then H60 helicopters and then dual qualified on C-130. So C-130s could stay up about 14 hours till they needed fuel. Cause you could, we could shut down two engines and conserve fuel that way. Um, a, uh, the helicopter could stay up uh, maybe a little over three and a half plus hours before it needed what we call bingo fuel, which is you want to land somewhere to get fuel and have a 30 minute reserve. Um, the Coast Guard age 60s have three external fuel tanks. The range is um, pretty good. Um, used to fly from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, which is just south of the Chesapeake, Norfolk, Virginia Beach area in Virginia. We could fly offshore, heading east, go do a rescue, hovering over something, usually picking up sailors that were trying to compete in the cross Atlantic or the New York to Bermuda race. Sometimes they'd flip their boat and pick them up and still fly all the way to Bermuda in our helicopter. That's um, a long was, time. There was once where I took off 
and flew from San Juan, Puerto Rico, clear all the way back here to Clearwater, Tampa Bay, Florida. That's a pretty long flight. Yeah, it was fast, though. We had a tailwind, mind you. Tailwinds help. But um, you can cover some distance in those helicopters with the tanks on full of fuel. Um, but we had something called bag times. It's, a, uh, it's an FAA requirement. So you would fly, if you flew more than six hours of flight time, once you landed, you weren't supposed to fly anymore because it was considered unsafe. So sometimes we would fly all the way up to just shy of three hours and land to get fuel and then take off again and continue on with our search. So the next time we landed, it was past six hours. Oh, okay. That's how you would get the max amount of time out of some. Sometimes if you conserved your fuel well and you didn't have to fly too far off shore to do your search, we could land, you know, close to four hours and then take off and then go do the rest of your search and then land close to eight hours of flight time. Oh, okay. So now I remember, again, the last time we talked, when you were up in the Northeast, you were mentioning that movie, um, Perfect oh, Storm. Perfect Storm, yeah. And how you guys flew either in that storm or something similar to it? I flew in it. Um, yeah, so there was more, there was a lot more activity during that storm than you see in the movie. And um, they focused on the uh, that fishing boat and uh, that that's interesting. That that one is uh, historic. Um, there was a lot more things that went on that um, weren't in the movie because the families didn't want a lot of it in the movie. Um, I flew out in that storm, and I'm going to tell you, it was ten times worse than the movie can depict it. I mean, how do you unless the, the movie is showing something on a screen in front of you. Imagine that surrounding you and you're getting beat up um, and it's cold and it's wet and you're doing it for hours. It's not like, oh, well, that lasted less than two hours. I can get in my car and go home now. Um, it, was, it was bad. The seas were bigger. Um, so like the people... I went after two different SAR cases the whole time. So mine was over six hours. Uh, nobody survived. So you're not going to put that in the movie. Um, well, the family didn't want in the movie. So there was uh, some Air Force PJs that did not survive. They crashed their helicopter. Oh, I didn't know there were uh, any Air Force assets in that. Yeah. Yeah, they went out to make a rescue and uh, ditch their helicopter. They they have um, a refueling probe on their helicopter. They don't have, they didn't have external tanks like us. Um, and they tried to refuel in the middle of the night in, in that weather and were not able to catch the drogue. So they ran out of fuel coming back to land and had to ditch. Um, one or two of the guys survived. That's... And a Coast Guard ship put some guys 
in a um, rigid hole inflatable over the side, some of our Coasty guys to go make a rescue, which they did. And had to, and then the, the rigid the, it was so rough, the seas were so rough, it popped the rigid hole inflatable. So the Coasties that were in that had to climb the nets up the side of the ship in those 30 foot waves. And they did that just, just to get back on the ship. It, it was horrible. There was a lot. That oh, movie, wow. the movie didn't do the storm justice. There were C-130s from Elizabeth City that flew up and were working that night. We had Falcon jets. Yeah, it was. Um, How many ships do you think were out there uh, of the fishermen, that is? Well, there, there was the one that sunk in the movie. The ones that were actually caught up in the storm. Yeah. Well, there was there was the one that was sunk in the movie. There were the, the there were two that I went after that didn't make it. Um, there were two more of our helicopters out there. I don't know. I think five, maybe six. Damn. Yeah, a lot of people died. That's. That's incredible because I don't know how. I mean, I know it's it's what you guys do, but to get into a, a small a small helicopter relative to a storm, and hitting those what you went through on the with I'm assuming with the winds and and the turbulence must have just been white knuckling it the whole way. No, you're actually because of your training. You're pretty confident and calm. It's rough. It's exciting is what it is. Is it? Um, you're so focused on searching and looking for why you're out there. You know, night vision goggles are down. Um, had a FLIR forward-looking infrared imager camera that mounted on the side of the H3 or the nose under the radome of the H60. The avionics man is the guy that used that and did that searching. You're too... You're, you're doing your job. Um, usually uh, crews that do this stuff are, are pretty fearless or they, they don't, they stop doing that job. Oh, okay. Okay. You, know, you, you don't do that job if you're afraid of that stuff. Do you're, they're... you're not, you're, um, you're a liability. It's not safe to have somebody in an aircraft that is afraid of that sort of stuff. That makes sense. Do you guys know, um, do the, do the fishermen have, um, like flashers or something that they put on their life vests or gear if they go in the water? They do. They have an emergency locating transmitter, transmitter or an EPIRB. Um, some of them don't use them or don't have them. They're not rich. Right. They skirt a lot of rules or they have something called a Gumby suit. You can't work in it. I mean, once you put it on, it's a survival suit. It's really just for you to just float around in. So they won't wear them. So they're tr trying to keep their boat upright. So they're not in a Gumby suit. That's their only survival suit. So all of a sudden when these things flip, it starts to sink so fast they don't have time to get in their gummy suit or they don't put it on properly. So I found 
guys that didn't survive that had their gumby suits on, but they didn't have it zipped all the way up. So the water was so cold, they their gumby suits filled up with water and they died of exposure simply because they couldn't zip it up and seal it. I mean, the zipper was just below their chin. Oh, wow. That's how close they were to making it. Um, you know, I mean, uh, a survival suit like that you wear for like uh, a dry suit, like we wear in the helicopters um, or divers wear, they cost so much money. Those fishermen can't really afford them. Yeah. I mean, and it wouldn't make any sense to to mandate them to wear the Gumby suit if they can't do their, the work that they need to do. You can't. Google Gumby suit and look at that thing. It looks like a 600-pound man can fit inside that thing. They're that large. And the, the, the hand mittens are a bit, you can't, if you watch Deadliest Catch and you see them in the middle of the night in the cold and those giant waves beating the hell out of them while yeah. they're pulling up crap, they're not wearing anything for survival. They may have, they might have a life jacket on, but what that does is help find where your body is. It keeps your body after you die of exposure pretty quickly. It helps your body float. It's about it. So let's move on to something a little bit more happy. <laughs> Chasing druggies. Okay. Um, so did you do any of that up there? Any um, more intentional counter-narcotic stuff up in the Northeast while you were flying? Um, we actually mostly did fisheries, but there was uh, a time when... Um, down here in Florida, they were starting to build up the number of aircraft they had, their assets to pick up anti-narcotics full-time. So we started flying a helicopter from Cape Cod and positioning it in, in Freeport, Bahamas for two weeks. And it will actually be there for like a month at a time and trade out the crews two weeks at a time overlapping and then send it back. And then the Clearwater Tampa Bay, Florida crew would do that for about a month. And then we'd overlap again. We did that for just over a year until they built up and had, I think 15 helicopters at the Florida station and were able to take it and do it all themselves. Um, we were special weapons qualified up there because we used to stand um, protection duty, if you will, for the first George Bush when he was vice president for Reagan, and then when he was president. So we already had our law enforcement style um, weapons qualifications. That's so, right, because you came in in the late 80s, and I think I forgot to mention that, right? Yeah, 84. Okay, mid-80s. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to jump on two things, and we'll come back to the aviation. First is you mentioned fisheries. So did you guys do stuff with uh, Fish and Game or Department of uh, Fish and Wildlife in those areas? Did you have um, any enforcement? When it was the small boat station we did with Massachusetts because, you know, state waters go out to three miles. So there's a lot of... Uh, lobster poaching so they have a uh, a size limit for 
those type of lobsters up there. They're, they're rock lobsters, they're the ones with the claws. Um, so they would go out and we'd board boats and let these state guys, well, we did it too. We had this little thing that you'd measure from where the tail attached to the thorax, the body, and then down to the tip of the tail had to be longer than this thing. Um, but sometimes the state guys would come because during lobster season, you would get all these fishing boats from the Outer Banks of North Carolina and from Virginia, and they would just anchor three miles offshore, just outside of three miles. So the state fisheries guys couldn't bother them. So like 3.1, just to say, screw you. Because their Lorans were pretty accurate, but they sometimes would sneak in at night because that's where the lobster were around our area in the shallows because lobster when the water's warm come to shallower water towards land so that's what we do is go find them at night and if if your boat said anything other than a home port on on it other than the letters ma if you were from somewhere else which was always wanna cheese north carolina that was the, that's the name of the place and always we board it and we'd often find um, undersized lobsters. So it was funny. So when I went to aviation school, there was a Winn-Dixie grocery store I used to go in just outside a base. And you know how grocery stores have those tanks with lobsters you could buy? Yeah. I'd walk by that thing. Every one of those freaking lobsters were small, like tiny. And I know where they got them because they don't have that type of lobster from North Carolina South. They have a whole different breed of lobster. And I'm like, those wanna cheese people were up there. Those are the ones that got away from us and they're poaching the little lobsters. They look like little mini, it was horrible. So, so that, was our, that was our game. Um, but we did some anti-drugs because it was uh, easy to smuggle drugs in boats all the way up into Canada and then smuggle it in boats down into the States. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So, so we, now did, Oh, go ahead. It was mostly marijuana. Sometimes um, if it was cocaine and stuff. So, you know, Massachusetts at the time, the IRA was still active. Irish Republican army was still active in Ireland. So there would be um, a big trading drugs for weapons thing. Sometimes we board boats and look for weapons because a lot of these fishing boats would smuggle weapons to Ireland for the IRA. Um, okay. Yeah, there was a lot of weird stuff we'd do up there. Oh, that's nuts. So um, what I was going to ask you next was, you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier about OCS, but for most military guys I know who were in between 91 and 99, they talk about the dry years with uh, the Clinton administration, not getting a lot of training, not getting a lot of money. Did that affect you guys? Big time. Um, they had a reduction in force, just like they did in the DOD. Um, so in my rate, they did not promote anybody for two years. Cool. Um, but once again, I was getting that danger pay and flight pay. So, and I was single. So I wasn't hurting, I didn't need the money, but there were people, there were E4s that if you didn't make E5 within seven years, I think it was, they kicked you out. Oh, higher tenure. The problem was, is 
they included your prior service in that seven years. So you could have been an E5 or an E4, or e, like I said, an E5 in a different branch. When you come over the Coast Guard, they start you as an E3, and then you get E4, but all of a sudden they're not promoting, at least they did in my rate. They included all that time you were in the Marines or Army or Navy or Air Force as at seven years. Oh. Yeah. I had a lot of friends that got kicked out because of that. They got screwed. That was unfair. I, I still have a, I personally still have a problem today with higher tenure. Um, no, I don't think an E2 should get 20 years in and retire, but no. I think there's some E5s and E6s who, well, E6 can retire, but some E5s at least that I aren't agree. going to make good leaders, but they're going to make amazing techs. Yeah, but I understand higher tenure, but these guys came into the Coast Guard to start a new life, and they were great at their specialty, but I'd like to say to the Coast Guard, you froze the damn promotions. So yeah. you, you're the ones that added two years onto this seven-year sentence. And now you're going to include the four years that they were in the, the Marines or Army or Air Force or Navy. That's six. And then it took them a year just to get from E3 to E4. Boom. In other words, I think they did it on purpose. It, it feels it, a little dirty. It, it looked it, it, where there's smoke, there's fire. They were looking for people to kick out. Yeah. And so these... Uh, I mean, I, I got I got the whole lesson back uh, when I first reenlisted in 2004. There's congressional mandates. Uh, it just passed recently, the NDAA, and it will actually spell out force strength um, per branch. And so probably somewhere in there it said, Coast Guard, you're at X amount. You need to drop down to this amount. And we're going to leave it up to you on how to figure it out. Because I bet you there were not a lot of officers, junior officers, who were higher tenured out. No. Um, and remember, they were in the Coast Guard. They were taking only women and minorities instead of, you know, why not take 75% women? If, if, I, if it sounds like I'm against equal opportunity, of course not. But, geez. Equal opportunity for all. Well, I'm trying to use your quota thing a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. So you, <laughs> so you uh, make the aviation thing back down to, you said, uh, Florida, right? Yeah. After, after the Bahamas back and forth and then finally to Florida. So when you got down there, I'm really curious because I know I didn't ask you this before. You probably had some old time senior chiefs and master chiefs in that Florida area who had been down there for a while. Did they talk about the cowboy days of um, co the Coke smuggling from like Escobar and how was the Coast Guard involved with that? Yeah. When I started it, I started it during the cowboy. Well, not the early, there was still, um, there was an Island called cat Island in the Bahamas that was basically owned by one of the drug kingpins. So when I started it from Cape Cod, it was near the end of that. The islands were still crooked, some of them. Um, I don't know if they are now. By the time I was retired, they weren't so much. Um, but 
Well, actually, there is one island. I know it's still pretty bad. It's just north of Cuba. If you fly over it, there's always these seven open hold go fast boats with like four outboards on each one. Every inch of the boat, the seat and steering wheel, everything is painted battleship gray. Um, and they've been there since 92 and are probably still there now. So whenever we'd fly over that island and didn't see those boats, we were like, oh, geez, it's either going to be a run or they're a decoy. Um, and there's police on that little island. There's probably only 100 people that live on there, but there's pol a police officer stationed on every island. But we, we'd arrest bus police. Um, the, there were uh, people in the control tower at NASA International the DEA found out when I was there that were um, crooked. When I used to have to go to the airport and cross the fence line to meet a C-130 for a logistics flight, I used to give them a fake name on purpose because I knew the cop that would take my name and write it down, he was probably crooked and I didn't want him to have my real name and pass it along to anybody and follow us back to the States. I mean, yeah, so it was a lot like it was it was it, it was fun. It was kind of like being in the movies, but uh, yeah. So, um, but most of the ones when I showed up here during the uh, big time heyday of the uh, late seventies, early eighties, they weren't around anymore. Most of those chiefs and master chiefs, they were gone. Oh, okay. So, um, what was a typical day like for you guys on a on a drug operation? It was a lot of um, patrols. Um, so were you just given sectors like, hey, take off here, go here, hang out, orbit, look for things, come home? We mostly, our, our stuff was mostly over land and aviation airplanes that carried dope. Of course, if we saw a boat down there doing it, yeah, you know, hello. But, you know, um, we had the opportunity of being over to fly over land and chase little airplanes coast guard fast boats that chase the drug boats and look for the submarines they can't do that we could do that we could go miles inland we could fly feet above a, a river and just come inland and surprise so the we'd find straight paved roads or dirt roads where somebody had cut the brush down on the sides for a couple hundred yards so a little airplane can come in there and land. And we were like, oh, there's gonna be a drop there. Then we know that's where we're gonna plant people with night vision goggles and stuff and dig a hole and, and wait for dopers to come do their, do a drop or something like that. So yeah, so but there was a lot of, um, a lot of patrols uh, looking in cliffs, cliffs had caves. Looking inside the caves, they like to hide drugs in there. So you would what, fly the helicopter along like a like a cave line and look fly along the edge of the cliff, looking in towards the cliff at the caves. Um, a lot of night patrols with everything blacked out, night vision goggles, flare. Uh, you find a lot of air strips and we look because the FLIR, you could tell if the engines were hot because there's no flying allowed at all in the in the Caribbean. So if you're night flying, yeah, no. Oh, you mean at night? Yeah. So if you're night flying, there's a reason why. So it'd be we'd often have 
with our DEU, we always had a DEA guy with us on board and a, a DEU drug enforcement unit strike force guy or a Turks and Caicos guy, somebody from that country. Oh, okay. And we'd have a drug sniffing dog. So if I spotted an engine, uh, an airplane with hot engines, we land and we let the drug dog sniff it out. And if it smelled drugs, we'd pop the lock and search that plane. If there were no drugs on it, we'd find the person that handled the fuel at the airport and say, where's the person that came off this plane? He's in this little village somewhere. Usually it would end up in something. So for you, um, going from search and rescue to this more law enforcement activity, um, I know you said, you know, you guys are trained to do this, but did you feel a difference in what you were doing? Going from mainly trying to rescue people to you may have some people try to take shots at you. A difference as in, I don't think so. I, I think I know what you're getting at. It's just two different modes, two missions. But um, I guess the sense of uh, one being more tense, just because yeah. you're dealing with people who, like, I think the last time we talked about it, depending on where they were in their transit of their drugs, the likelihood yeah. of them oh. doing, doing dumb shit. Would... Usually we always surprise them. Always. Also, the, the going rate for smuggling drugs, like they could be smuggling $5 million, $500 million worth of, worth of cocaine, but the average typical person was getting paid about 5,000 US dollars. So it was not worth 5,000 US dollars to get in a shootout with us. Most of them didn't carry weapons on purpose. They would first try to dump the drugs because that's really what we wanted. That way they could get away. But um, we could usually mark the drugs with a data marker beacon that lets out a signal and then continue to chase them and have another aircraft come out from somewhere and hover around or pick up the drugs. Because we had more than one helicopter at wherever we were. Right, right. Um, but there was usually not an issue. If they carried weapons, it was more to protect themselves from being pirated by other drug um, competing cartels or just robbers, pirates. They never wanted to get in a shootout with us because you can't run and hide. Yeah, yeah. Not in the Caribbean. Um, actually, I don't even think you can anywhere. Were you guys gun shipped up or were... Uh or armed as far as the bird or was it just what no, you we, carried? We carried, I carried a, a running, I carried a shotgun. Everybody carried something a little bit different. But um, nothing hanging out the side. No, they carry uh, the H60s have a mount for an M240 machine gun. Now the Hitron guys carry a uh, 50 caliber sniper rifle and mounted next to that is an M240. And on the side of the helicopter, on each side is a, uh, is a, a, a I think it's a, a 308 or 762 machine gun on each side of those helicopters. Oh, okay. But back then it was all personal arms. On, on, for me, for what I did, but they had the Hitron helicopters too. Oh, okay. Those usually deployed on the ships. 
because they could fit on them. Those are the ones with the big ducted fan in the back. Yeah. That you, that, I think you said the unique noise that it makes. Yeah. The H65 Dolphins. Yes. The ones that make the high pitched hum. I think when, I think when most people think of Coast Guard helicopters, that's the one they typically think of. Or at least maybe maybe where I was at in Southern California, every time I go to the beach, you would always see one of those guys fly over. Those fit on those, the ships are deployable on the ships. They don't have the range or, or endurance like the H-60s do, but that's okay because they can get range in, you know, in endurance by being on the back of a ship. Right, and the, uh, and the H-60s are basically the Blackhawks, right? Yeah, they have folding heads and folding tails so they can go on ships, but we tried to do ship deployments. Um, I, for training one day off the coast of Virginia Beach, did 40 landings on a Coast Guard 270, which had a deck that a 60 could fit on. Um, we fit okay, fine. 40 day landings and then 40 night landings, and it was mostly to qualify their crews. And it was fine, but that boat is made, that, that ship, we're not allowed to land on it if it's taking more than six degrees pitch, front and back, or two degrees roll. So it almost needs to be as flat as a lake. Two degrees roll? Yeah. That's and that's the only ship that our, our H-60s, the deck was stressed for in the Coast Guard. So, and plus because we had such good range, Whenever we, they, in the earlier years, they would try to deploy us. I never had to do it, thank God. They would try to deploy us with one of those cutters because they couldn't land on it. Basically what the helicopter crew did is just kind of land and spend the night on an island and just kind of follow the ship around hmm. while they did their drug patrols. That would be miserable. Off. And it was like, you know, we don't need these ship guys. We can fly twice as far faster without that. So the Coast Guard was finally like, yeah, let's stop this ship nonsense. Get rid of the folding rotor head because that was a maintenance nightmare. So we put the Army Blackhawk set up. We still have the folding rotor head because we can still be used for that for who knows what reason. I mean, the Navy might want us for something. They haven't yet, but they could. Um, still have the folding tail. Um, but uh, I don't know. We stopped deploying on cutters long before I retired. And besides, uh, no need to. You got these gunship, badass Hitron 65s that shoot things up. So, yeah. So what year did you jump from uh, rotary to fixed wing? That was in um, 97. So I was not asked to, I was made to. Oh, voluntold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I was stationed in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, the C-130s did um, an ice patrol, they called it. They used to fly and deploy out of uh, Newfoundland, St. John's, Newfoundland, because they did the... Um, International Ice Patrol. It was an agreement we had with Canada and I think Europe and everything. Ever since the Titanic, that's when the Ice Patrol started. We we and other countries would go out and mark and map iceberg movements. So the C-130s would go out and 
map icebergs. Air Station Cape Cod overlapped and did that. Canada did that, still does. Um, I don't know if Iceland, Greenland, I think England might still do it, but so they did all the deploying. Elizabeth City, us helicopter guys, we didn't. Um, so they were busy. So there was only three of us avionics guys at that unit that flew helicopters. So we were basically just standing search and rescue, sometimes flying inland looking for marijuana fields. So they said, well, the C-130 guys are really busy and could use your help. You need to get qualified to fly in the cockpit and be a radio operator, navigator on the C-130. I was like, damn, okay. I'm gonna get it just as busy here as I was doing nothing but flying helicopters Clearwater. I thought I was gonna get a, a, a couple years break, but no, but I really enjoyed it. C-130 guys are great, man. So how how is the creature comfort difference between uh, the, age, oh. the age 60 and the C-130? <laughs> Those guys are crazy now. Let me tell you about them. They're fearless too. So I come back down to Clearwater I get stationed back down to Clearwater because, you know, my anti-narcotics experience, we, most of us didn't move around a lot. We didn't get stationed in like Kodiak, Alaska, because there's not a lot of cocaine drug lords up there or like um, Detroit or Chicago. So right back down to Florida and um, I'm allowed to, because I'm a uh, H60 instructor, examiner, you know, the training, just the whole deal. They were like, oh, you can drop your C-130 quals. And I'm like, I don't know, it's kind of fun. I'll fly once or twice a month. Um, and I actually stood duty on them once in a while, but I did this, um, I did a, a week-long deployment out of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, flying offshore looking for dopers. And we found a go-fast boat and we were chasing it. And it, these go-fast boats, they call them Jamaican canoes. They're open hold. They're real long, they're fast. They got like four outboards and you could see this thing. It's got tons of these bales of co like cocaine on there. They got 55 gallon drums of fuel too, but they can just continue fueling their boat with. And to lose us, what they'll do is they always will run and find a storm and try to go into the storm because they think that we'll lose visibility or we will fly into these storms because these storms are there's uh, funnel clouds in there and, you know, all these things, water spouts. But, you know, that's the type of stuff we fly in, storms. So we find them with our SAR radar. You can't hide from a SAR radar or an ISAR radar. Um, seas are picking up five, seven feet. These guys are getting the crap beat out of them. And we're buzzing them at 100 feet in a C-130. And they're like, I can't, they're, this is going on for hours. They're, they can't figure out. So usually what they try to do is outlast us. So now we shut two engines down and we're flying in this storm, buzzing them. So what they do is they stop dead in the water because the easiest way to track these things is there. You could be at 30,000 feet and spot a wake. You will not see the speck of a boat, but you can spot a wake. Really? That high altitude. That's how you find the dopers. You always, you look for the wake. Um, you can even, if there's stars or even a sliver of a moon, if there's no clouds between you and the ocean, you can spot the uh, a wake. Is it that obvious? 
Uh, yeah, real obvious. Um, next time you're flying in a civilian airplane, take a look out the window if you're flying over the ocean and if there's any ambient light out and there's no clouds, look and you'll spot a wake if there's a boat down there. I'm gonna do that. Anyway, so what they'll do is they carry blue, blue, big blue tarps and they'll drape it over the whole boat and cover themselves and think it camouflages them with the water. It doesn't. It's a blue shiny tarp. I don't know who told them that. And they've been doing that for years. But um, come, so we we did this for uh, almost 14 hours and they hate, they had to hate us. They had to hate it. It sucked for them down there. Finally, they just went ahead and were like, well, we're out. And they started heading towards Jamaica. This was near we, it all started off the uh, international waters just off of Venezuela. Um, they started heading towards Jamaica. We needed to finish, and we were running low on fuel. Another C-130 from Clearwater. I was talking to them on the HF radio. They were coming out, and they relieved us. Long story short, chase these guys all the way towards Jamaica until Jamaican helicopter, police helicopter, took off and followed them into the beach. Um, come to find out, we were buzzing them in, in a tropical storm. We didn't even know it was a tropical storm. <laughs> Damn. So, so I mean, we're flying at buzzing these guys 100 feet off the water in a C-130 with two engines shut down in the eye of a tropical storm. So C-130 guys got balls too. Yeah, they do. Great. But you're, you're dry. You're not getting... You're not getting uh, oh, wet. That. <laughs> yeah, that's and, what I meant by the creature comforts. And you have coolers filled with uh, like box lunches. Oh, nice, nice. So there is that. So these drug guys haven't learned that. Okay, you got fourteen. You got fourteen hours on them. There's going to be another plane coming, regardless if you bail or not. So there's twenty-eight hours on them. What these guys should have done is they must have been rookies because what a lot of them do is they were close enough is head towards Cuba. A lot of them will get in Cuban waters on the south side, and we can't go in there. Then they can take their time. They can go all the way around the east end of the island and then get on the north side of the island, because I follow them doing this, and just sit there dead in the water and wait until there's, for some reason, they, they could wait for days. At some point, for some reason, there will be a quick gap where there's no cover, could be because a search and rescue case, which is the priority, popped up. That's more important than law enforcement. Um, if there's any reason that all of a sudden there's no Coast Guard or customs plane over them or helicopter, all they got to do is make that jump from the Cuban waters to the Everglades. It takes them such a quick snap of time, and they're home free. And well, that's I was going to ask. So, I mean, if these guys are coming off, the, say, the coast of Venezuela, Colombia, how long does it take them to transit to Florida if they're going all out? Oh, they, they're usually, typically they don't make the run to Florida. Typically they make it the run to one of the, the Bahamas or one of the smaller islands and then drop it off. Then they usually let the drugs sit there for six months to a year and forgotten what? about. Dude, this, these millionaires, they got time. So they're playing the long game. Yeah. Wow. See, that I didn't even think of, like dropping them off somewhere. And 
On the one island we were, Laura's calling. On one island that we deployed on just north of Haiti, a civilian plane came to land and some of the young, I think they were teenagers, teenage guys and women, were getting on this twin engine turboprop thing and we had one of our Bahamian DEU guys in civilian clothes. He was wearing swim trunks. Didn't know in his underwear he had a little mini, mini revolver tucked in there. All of a sudden, he starts chasing this guy, takes off, and little packets of cocaine were falling out of his pocket. And I'm like, well, I just did my, my 5K that I do every day to get in shape. I'm not running after him. Stopped him and busted him right there right in front of our eyes. This plane was parked right next to our helicopter. It's, it's crazy. But right now they seem to do most of their drug running off the West Coast and across land, across the border. Oh, wow. Into Texas, Arizona, not so much the Caribbean. Well, I'm not gonna say it's not there, but it's hard to, we, we, we lock that down pretty good. But most of it is over land or they're trying to do it on the West Coast now of Damn. California. So when, I, I know we talked about this briefly, but when 9-11 hit, you guys were deployed. Yeah, I was actually down on the islands. Um, I was in Nassau, Bahamas. So that's one of our deployment spots because um, that's where the U.S. Embassy is. That's where Fox Hill Prison is. So that's where we put a lot of the prisoners we'd catch. Um, and I'll always remember 9-11 is on a Tuesday, September, the original 9-11, because Tuesday is the day, our relief day, where a new crew would come in. And I was the site supervisor, so I was the guy in charge. And um, I had everybody else back at the hooches getting all their personal stuff ready, because a C-130 was going to come in a few hours and drop off the new crew and take us all out of there. Um, so we've been down there for a month. Um, I'm back down at the airstrip getting some things together to put my, I had a big Ford Expedition. It was pretty nice. Big bulletproof Ford Expedition. Um, wait a ton. But there's things I had to pack up like an aircraft battery, some hazmat stuff. I was the hazmat guy too, you know, filling out paperwork. And I was down there and I got a call on the landline from the guys back at the hooch. And they were like, chief, you need to come up here. Something happened, and I'm like, I don't like the sound of this. Usually when somebody's talking like that, somebody fell off, somebody's <laughs> falling down some stairs. I mean, it's just not good. And why on relief day? They call me Chief Gray Cloud already. I don't need issues. I'm like, what happened? They're like, no, something, something bad. And I go, okay, now you made it even worse for me. Who, who did what? What happened? They're like, no, that's not it. We were watching something on TV. We don't know what's going on. I'm like, can you explain? And they go, no, it's too much. Just, just come back. Just come back now. And I'm like, oh, all right, I'll be there in a minute. Cause I'd already finished packing everything up. I got my vehicle. It was about a 15 minute drive. I think about give or take a few minutes back to the hooches. And I walk in the front door in the big room and there's a TV, small color, I don't know, 20 some odd inch color TV. And I'm looking and everybody's standing there watching the TV. And I see one of the World Trade Center's smoke coming off of it. And I go, what happened? He said, a plane flew into it. 
And um, one of the guys said, yeah, I, it, we thought at first it was an accident, but we don't know. There's some other chatter on the news here. We don't know what's going on. And I'm standing there and I'm like, it's, as, as they say that, that's right when I see the second airplane hit. And I'm like, dude, this doesn't look like, this can't be an accident. Cause it's, you know, we know aviation, right? We know oh, how oh, that's a good, yeah. we know how control towers work. I flew around New York City a lot in helicopters. Planes, I know the approaches to both those air airports up there, JFK and LaGuardia. None of the rate the runways are even in line with those buildings. So if one messed up and hit, for two to be messed up and hit, there's something wrong with navigation gear. It's, it, too many coincidences. It'll never happen in a, a million years. It just can't happen. You can't intentionally set your navigation equipment up to full pilots. And it was sunny out and clear. So the pilots had to see these things, these buildings. That's how I knew. I'm like, no, this, this, is, this is intentional. Something's going on. Well, while we were there, um, we were training the Navy SEALs. There was Navy SEAL detachment team, about seven guys that were training the DEU guys because they're somewhat SEAL trained. And they have thousands and thousands of rounds of ammo. And he came over to the hooch and the, their chief and said, man, we got all this ammo and our Navy C-130 is not coming to pick us up. Is your plane coming to pick you up? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I can't get a line back to the States. It's too much static. He's like, we got hundreds of thousands of rounds of, of um, M16 or M4 and uh, nine millimeter ammo. Can we put it on, on your Herc with you and fly back with you guys? I'm like, I don't think it'll fit. We got pallet loads of helicopter stuff. So I'm like, why don't you just leave it here and let these guys shoot it up? And he's like, ah, no, they want it back. Anyways, I, I, I got back to the States. They said, We're, we can't come get you. Nothing's allowed to fly in or out of the country. You got to stay where you are. So the Navy SEAL guy was like, I don't know what to do about this stuff. Let's all go shoot it up. And I'm like, well, I'm on a shooting team. I know what it's like to shoot a lot of, of ammo. And that would take forever to the point where it, it would actually get to the point where it's not fun. And mostly, who's going to clean those guns? No. I said, let's, let's not. And I was begging him, can you just... He had to beg his unit to leave. It took him... We ended up staying there three more weeks. But he, it took him about after the second week of staying there before they finally let him leave the ammo there for the Bahamians. Because I was like, we're not going to shoot all this, and we can't take it back. There's just no room on the C-130. So that was my one weird thing about 9-11 is what are we going to do with the Navy SEALs ammunition? Did you guys at least blow some off to get some frustration no, out? No. <laughs> My biggest worry, more than getting my guys home, was how am I going to help this guy get rid of his ammunition? And Crazy. we got approval. Just, just leave it there with the Bahamians. So post 9-11, did anything change 
for you guys as far as drug trafficking increase, uh, higher security alerts for being yeah, on base? There were higher security alerts on the base. Um, sometimes um, a vehicle would park. We're at an international airport, actually, is where our air station is. So hundreds of yards away, somebody would pull over on the side of the road and look through the fence and take pictures of helicopters and C-130s. And they were probably just doing it as a hobby, but we didn't know who they were. So we'd go run them off. So we had our guys would stand armed duty shifts, security, and walk the fence line and drive the fence line and stuff. Um, the dopers tried to, uh, we, we still maintain our, our, our drug watch. So that part didn't change for us. There was wonder if they were going to send us overseas because we were all qualified with our weapons and, and used to working internationally and everything. But it goes back to, what did I tell you? Our helicopters don't fit on Coast Guard ships well. So this went on with, what are we gonna do with the Clearwater guys? And they just never sent us. They sent Coast Guard patrol boats and cutters over to the Persian Gulf, but with those Hitron helicopters. They never sent us because we're too big. Which it, makes it, sense. Yeah, I mean, they would have, they, we could have, we might've been able to fly over there across the Northeast just like the C-130s, because we got such long range and met a boat over there and still not deployed off the damn ship. We'd have probably been, if it was Iraq, we'd have been probably hanging out with Saudi Arabia or Kuwait. Yeah. And Did you doing rescues from there. Because with our range, we could have flown straight across the whole entire country of Iraq into Turkey without fueling. I mean... We, so they ended up uh, sending the uh, little Hitron helicopters on the Coast Guard ships. Did they send any of the uh, C-130s? Uh, no, they didn't need the C-130s. Uh, C-130s, okay, they used the C-130s for logistics flights. They didn't deploy them. Oh, okay, okay. So I know that, um, just speaking of, of Iraq, I know I met a guy who was a Coastie who was on ABOT, which was one of the uh, oil rigs when it got hit by a suicide bomber. He was one of the, at the time, one of the two non-Vietnam Purple Heart recipients from the Coast Guard. I cannot remember his name for the life of me. I know who you're talking about, but I can't remember his name either. We had a, we had a guy that was killed over there. That Yeah, he, he, it was both of them. They were both on it. And I think they were there with the SEAL team. And if I remember correctly, uh, boat, a boat-born suicide bomber had blown up and he was caught in it, if I remember right. That sounds right. Yeah, it was a it was a, an IED. Yeah. So, um, speaking of terrorism, did you guys start having to take that into consideration as you're looking for these drug boats or the or these counter narcotics? Did the idea that the human trafficking may be trying to smuggle terrorists or terrorist uh, utensils? No, you got to remember that's a sin to Al Qaeda. They, they they probably want to kill the drug smugglers. But I mean, like in, in Afghanistan, the Taliban in Al-Qaeda used a lot of the opium to, to fund Al-Qaeda. That's historic for them. 
not cocaine. Okay, I get what you're saying. Plus, cocaine drug lords, it's a different culture. The, the cocaine drug lords are sinners with their women and their money and their gambling. They're not Al-Qaeda. Okay, so I get what it is. It's a drug. It's, it's, you know, here's another thing. I'm going to just throw this out there. You know, you notice we don't get a lot of ISIS or Al-Qaeda coming across the Mexican border? Yeah. You, you, I'm going to say probably because they're definitely afraid of the Mexican cartels. The Mexican cartels, their shit would come to a screeching halt if Al-Qaeda and ISIS started making it across our borders. Everybody, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, you're going to want a wall built. Yeah, probably. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the cartels, the last thing they want is ISIS or Al-Qaeda farting around in Mexico and crossing our borders. The cartels are probably our best police to keep the Muslim terrorists from crossing our border. You think? You don't oh. think they would do an unholy alliance if they could make money off of it? No. What kind of rule? They're they're fanatic religious. They're too fanatic in their religious. They they wouldn't team up with. Geez, they're they're more sinners than than the average Joe in this country. No, you yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. I always kind of figured that there there may be some weird. No, and, and the and the dopers would never team up with those guys. They don't want that much drama. No, no. Okay. The you, you, you know this far better than I do. Yeah. No, the Mexican cuts Mexicans cut heads off with chainsaws anyways. They don't do the the, the slice. The, yeah, they, they have their own ways of terrorizing. They don't need those guys. No, so did, they don't want that. They don't need that mess. Did you guys ever deal with any of the cartel guys, the Mexican cartels? Um, I didn't personally. We had guys that would started deploying out of Brownsville, Texas. And we did not land in Mexico. It was a whole different world. So where I said mostly the guys that we'd go after didn't even bother carrying a gun. Well, some did. Sometimes we'd find weapons, but mostly they didn't want to get into a shootout with us or anything. Um, the Mexican, they were different. We were told to be very careful around there. There, you don't want to play around with those guys. They'll blast you and not even care. They, they'll make an example of you. So that went on for about a year, year and a half until our Border Patrol and Customs had manned up their stuff better. Oh, okay. Was there ever, I mean, as you're saying, the cartel side, the Mexican cartel side is obviously more um ready to engage was there any ever do you know of anyone ever worried about them trying to take down a whole helicopter because i mean they have the tools this, now mind you this was like 2000 2000 2001 2002 so I, this is kind of in the early years oh okay beginning of the Mexican cartel so it was before the they fully had their you know, their military that had gotten out and transferred and started work for them. They weren't that big yet. They were, they were what, what they had was still cruel and vicious. I don't think they were ready to, 
like we'd find some of their little boats trying to cross the border from Mexico into Texas, but they weren't in blow helicopters out of the water yet. I don't think they were really armed for it. Oh, okay. Okay. I wouldn't mess with them now. God only knows what they have now. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So when did you end up uh, retiring? 2004. So uh, were you ready to go or was it um, just the best choice that you saw in front of you? I thought it was time. Um, nothing was really changing for me. I have a uh, aviation um, airframe and power plant license, which is civilian version. So I did more than avionics. I could do airframe, um, engine work, all that stuff. Um, I also had uh, FCC licenses, still have those. So I have radio operator license, radio repair. I have radar endorsement, endorsement. I have GMDSS repair and operator. I got all, all every FCC license that you can imagine. So I had stuff that I could use in the um, civilian world working for an engineering firm. So that's what I did. I worked for an engineering company. Um, we designed from scratch uh, radars and sensor systems that were to be put on drones. And we had a King Air, an RC King Air, or reconnaissance King Air with a radar on the belly. So I was in charge of that. I was the aviation guy, as well as um, I was the electronics lab chief, if you will, the manager. <clears throat> I also... Uh, went and got a, um, a full degree in management. So I could get, I got a master's degree in um, business. So, so did you, day. how was the transition leaving? Um, I'm going to assume just like me for being a corpsman with Marines, you guys being air crew, probably had a really tight knit bunch of guys that you hang out, that you were around all the time to becoming an employee. Um, it was fine. It was different working with uh, non-military people. For example, you know, when we usually communicate, it's fast, it's to the point, it's quite direct. Um, I used to have engineers that would come into my office, mechanical engineers, or and would sit there and talk to me. And then when they were done, I'd say, after 15, 20 minutes, sometimes even more, I'd say, everything you just said to me could have been said in two or three sentences. And we'd be done. We could be out of here. It was, and I was always, you know, by the book, I had to be. Whether, and it wasn't military, even if I was, grew up doing aviation as a civilian guy, I had FAA and NTSB regulations to get my AMP license and FCC license. So I'd argue, I had an argument. He's a good friend too. If you ever see this, Lou, I love you, buddy. <laughs> he and I had an argument where he wanted to put, mount something on the bottom of the airplane and use sheet metal screws. But this part of the airframe, it, it, it wasn't pressurized. So he didn't see a problem with it. And it wasn't gonna hold a lot of weight what he was gonna mount there. And it was gonna be inside a radon. So it wasn't gonna be in the slipstream. So he didn't see a problem. And I looked at him like, is he joking? You don't put sheet metal screws in airframes, nothing ever. 
And I happen to have the book, the uh, FAA book, but you know, on uh, airframe and hardware. It's the hardware Bible, what you can use and how to use it and everything. And we were arguing and it got pretty bad. It got heated and we F-bombed each other. It was getting Damn. bad. It was that bad. It was the worst we ever got. I wish it didn't get that bad. Um, and it got down to the point where it was like, it's not in this book. There's not a sheet metal screw in this book that says, there's nothing in this book that says you can put that screw in that airplane. And he looked at me serious as hell and said, there's nothing in that book that says I can't. And that's how non-military, that was the first time I ever heard that. And people can think that way outside of the military. We are so by the book that if it's not in the book, then it doesn't exist. It is, you can't do it. It doesn't happen. It didn't happen. It won't happen. It's not in the universe. Or even if it is, pretend it isn't. It doesn't matter to you because it's not in this book. But to them, it didn't say that he's not allowed to drive a damn sheet metal screw into that airplane. So who, who won that argument? I did. <laughs> because I'm the licensed one. I said, well, somebody has to sign off this maintenance. You can't. Oh, okay. I get it. In, this, in this entire place that can, so I'm not going to sign it off. Secondly, in the hierarchy, I fall just under the vice president of the company, so I'm in charge of you, so I'm telling you no. And third, I'm going to tell the owner of the company that you just drilled a sheet metal screw into his $6.3 million aircraft because you said a book says, doesn't say you're not allowed to. And then he's like, okay. And he got up and he left and left the hangar. So, but that's what it took <laughs> was telling him that he was going to lose, you know, it, there's, so there's a hierarchy, but it didn't matter. Engineers are above everybody. Didn't matter where I was, he was an engineer. Um, master's degree in, in mechanical engineering. Um, so that outweighed my business degree, my master's degree in my electronics. Um, but it, once I told him like a six, three, $6.3 million aircraft, you gotta talk to the owner. That's what being, so that was my transition. That was my, awakening of this is what's different from being in the military from being in the military it was if it's not in the book you don't do it it doesn't happen a and b because i'm your boss and i said no that's end of discussion it doesn't work that way in real life yeah. there's going to be a discussion or if they come to brief you on something stand by to stand by to get the full brief and be patient because everything they say could have been said in about 45 seconds, but just be patient because that's all they know. So, okay. I got to go on this subject of the airframe and, and all of that. <laughs> I have watched so many recent YouTube videos where guys who are pilots who have at least eight GoPros mounted on their plane, you'll, you'll see them do a flyover ballet and they'll be 
belly down, wingtip, cockpit. How are they getting away with that? Mounted on the outside? Yeah, like you'll see wingtip, you'll see from belly view, you'll see from tail view. I mean, and I've seen one where you, the, you it's guys... It's not a permanent mount. So there's something called a part 91. So if you're not flying passengers, you can have contract passengers and be... There's P-A-R-T, part, it's an acronym. Um, it's a legal term for a federal regulation. So there's different numbers after them. It's a category of what kind of plane you are, how many engines, if you can carry passengers, if you can carry contract passengers or paying passengers like an airline, that's part 135. There's certain things you can do to an airplane and not do. Yeah, most of these um, are like privately owned uh, prop planes. So if they're not carrying, if they're not part 91 or 135, in other words, they never carry passengers, and that part is not permanent, like it's just screwed into the airframe somewhere, it can be allowed. Oh, if okay. it's considered experimental, they can do anything and even get over doing annual inspections, which is, we, we had our plane in experimental once for a year, and it was not a good idea because it costs a shit ton of money to get it out of experimental. But um, but there's there's times when you can do things like that, but, and if it's not permanent, like if, if he was uh, taking a, a paying passenger or something, he'd probably have to take all that off. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, just, I just noticed that because you were so adamant about following the book that the, I know the FAA goes and actively looks at drone footage. Yeah, I mean- Going, why are they not doing the same thing to people who may be violating it in a different- uh, the people that are doing this might not, they might've been violating too. I mean, you can't have an FAA inspector everywhere. Yeah, um, it's, just, it's funny though how much drone footage on YouTube gets hit. But if they're, if they're filming, if somebody's doing a GoPro and they're putting it online, they're probably legit. I mean, they're, or they're stupid as hell, but I'm going- I, I'm going with B. Really? You would, have you seen YouTubers? It's so easy to catch. Well, no, because if they're doing it and they know, well, first off, there'd have to be some sort of proof. They, the FAA would have to know what plane it is and who's flying it. That's true. Which they could do. They can get a pretty good idea by looking at radar imagery and knowing the time. Well, some of these guys film their walk up and you can see their tail number. Oh, <laughs> see, they can't be that. I'm sorry. I, I'm not going with B. Okay. I, well, I, I just assume that most people on YouTube are B. So let's, well, jump, <laughs> let, let's jump to this. So you actually um, are part of an organization that helps veterans with TBI and PTSD. Yeah. And amputations. And amputations. Can, how did you get involved with that? Um, uh, it's a little complex, but uh, when I was still in the hospital, right after my amputation. Let, let's go back to that one, because I don't think we've talked about that yet. Oh, so 
after I was, um, I stopped working for the engineering firm when there was a change of political, uh, when there was a change of presidents in this country. Um, the engineering firm was a government contractor. So government contracts dried up and my job shrunk. I was actually one of the last to leave because I had to sell the airplane. So I started working for a company where I was training US and foreign military to work on and fly in C-130s. We had the big flight simulators, had like a, a classroom with a big engine on a stand, um, electronics, I had uh, soldering benches and all this stuff. And um, one of the classes I taught for about a year was a Japanese Maritime Defense Force. I also taught some Middle Eastern um, I didn't teach anybody from South America. I taught a lot of people from different uh, African countries, military. Um, but these were Japanese. So our our country was donating, giving them six C-130s that used to be Marine C-130s. They were parked in the boneyard of Arizona. So we had to get these things after we were done teaching them. They went back to Japan. Um, Myself and another avionics guy was working with the Boneyard in Arizona to get these six C-130s out and get them back flyable. So we were going back and forth to Arizona and I would run a minimum of five miles every night because I did triathlons. I still do, um, but I was training up for an Ironman. So when they're done in Arizona, they would fly these C-130s to Hill Air Force Base in Salt Lake City, Utah. And that's where they get them 100% flyable. So we would, uh, my friend and I from, who also worked with me, we would fly to uh, Salt Lake City, stay there for about a week, 10 days, work with the Air Force and the civilian contractors getting these, helping them troubleshoot. Because sometimes some of these things were a little advanced for them. We had years of experience. I mean, we taught the stuff help them get these airplanes running again, all six of them, one by one. And he and I were going back and forth every month, a couple times a month for about a year. And I was training for this Ironman. And eventually he and I were gonna start flying these C-130s over to Japan and give them to the Japanese. And uh, it was our, so it was our last time in Salt Lake City before we were supposed to leave and we we're going to be gone for about a year. Um, we we're going to be overseas for a year. So it was our last night in Salt Lake City and we were going to leave to go overseas in 10 days. And But in seven days, I had an Ironman up in Georgia and I was running a five mile course I'd run every day before dinner. And I was for about a year and a half, the second fastest guy in the state of Florida in my age group. Nice. And I was consistently beating this guy's fastest time for about six months. And now I'm up at altitude and it's hot. It's only almost five and a half thousand feet, but still. And I'm looking and I'm running um, about a six and a half minute mile at the end of five miles. And I'm like, I'm going to beat this guy. 
consistently now. I've been trying to beat him. I keep ending up second place in every race. I'm finally going to beat him. And I'm about 400 yards from the hotel and I'm on a sidewalk and I'm just running and I'm looking at the hotel. I'm like, I'm going to finally win this Ironman. Next thing I know, I wake up in a hospital. Somebody ran off the road doing about 60 to 65 um, in a 30 mile per hour zone. It was a sharp turn. They couldn't navigate the turn. Ran off the road, jumped the curb, hit me from behind, jumped back onto the road and dragged me about 190 yards under their SUV. Um, hit a speed wow. bump, and that's what dislodged me. Um, they flew a helicopter in, picked me up, and I'm lucky that if you're gonna if you're gonna run over Dave Karras, the do it in Salt Lake City because that's where the University of Utah Trauma Center is. There's a third-rated trauma center in the world. Um, so they saved my life. Um, so they, ampl they amputated. I was losing so much blood. They amputated below the knee first. They tried to do that because they knew that I, I did triathlons and stuff. Um, or somebody, the, one of the police officers had seen me run that course for, you know, about eight months since every time that was his beat from me going and visiting all this time. But I was losing so much blood, like within 24 hours, they decided to amputate above the knee. Um, my torso was crushed, so my right lung was collapsed. I got four titanium ribs. My lower right ribs are titanium. They fused five of my lowest vertebrae, and I got two rods that run up against my spine. So I had a tube in my side here to help the deflated lung. I had one course in the neck that's helped breathe and whatever. I had one in my stomach was to help me eat. I think my uh, my pelvis was broken in half. The hip bone was out and broken off. And I got a traumatic brain injury. Oh, and I had a bolt sticking in my head. A bolt? Was, yeah, a metal bolt. I must have picked that up on the road unless it was from the bottom of the SUV. I don't know. Um, but I... I don't really have a bald spot. There's like a tiny one up there. So it's pretty neat. Um, pretty <laughs> you were almost Herman Munster. It needed to be lower on the side of the neck, not on the top of the head. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was right in this area somewhere. But uh, so neat story. So I was so determined that this happened in August, August 28, 2014. And then in March of 2015, I competed in a triathlon and won my age group. It wasn't a Paralympic one either. I raced regular regular two-leggers. Were you doing it on a racing leg or were you doing it on a on a just a normal prosthetic? It was um, racing leg, but you're not allowed to swim. I, I had to swim one-legged, which is fine. Because a prosthetic is like an anchor. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. So I'm a good swimmer. So I was always ahead. I would beat and catch up the group, catch up with the group that started five minutes before me. That that's how I would win triathlons is because of my swim, because that's people's worst thing is swimming. <laughs> 
they, they they hate it. How are you on the uh, how are you on the bike? Did you um, have like a special leg that clicked in? Um, no, I have a special shoe. I was going to show you. I'm not going to get it, but yeah, I'll show you. All right, Dave is going to grab his shoe. Uh, so this is pretty cool. I didn't know that he had a special shoe for biking. And he is grabbing it right now. Just so for you who are listening know what's going on. Just a little awkward. But anyways, you guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode. Um, and thanks for continuing to watch. Here comes Dave. Okay, so I discovered this... Uh... So I have a triathlon bike, a two-wheel upright bike that I spent a lot of money on. And um, I decided I'm not going to do a recumbent bike. Um, I didn't want to. I figured, you know, engineers are getting paid six figures to design these fake legs. And they talk smack. And I know how hateable engineers can be because I worked with them. Remember, they're the ones don't go by the book and like to argue with me. Yeah. So I'm going to ride my freaking two-wheel upright bike. But the problem is, is your foot comes off of it when you pedal down and around. So I discovered this company that makes these uh, Magnatech devices out in California that are so strong they do it with mountain bikes. So basically, you take the clip that's held onto the bottom of a bike shoe, two screws, and then you replace it with this magnet. It's an extremely strong magnet. And your pedal, you take the clip type pedal off and you have a different one, a flat pedal with another, uh, another magnet. So, you know, you get opposite poles of track. So I don't have to try to clip on. I clip on with my left foot, my, my, good, my good foot. And then I hold my, my uh, fake leg up in the general area and get the, get the pedal swung around and it just catches. That's it. Oh, nice. So now, because I don't have a way to twist my leg, because it's, I don't have muscles there or anything, um, I can actually just start to slide it off and, and as opposed to unclipping. That was the problem. So when I first, I first originally started clipping in with a normal shoe, but the problem was for me to unclip, I almost had to lay my bike sideways and twist the bike. Oh, okay. I get what you're saying. It was yeah, that's not. Yeah. It was. And if I needed to get off of it in an emergency, that was going to be a problem. It was just, it was high maintenance. But these, uh, these magnetic things, they're, they're a lifesaver. Have you patented them yet? No, no, no. Somebody else already. Oh. Uh, no, it's a different company. Oh, you mean as far as fake leggers? Yeah. Now I told my sports and rec person to, you know, tell people to start getting this and they don't have to, uh, cause those, I think those, that's a uh, smart idea. Take up so much room. Yeah. I, I know there's a lot of guys for the team Navy adaptive sports who are looking at recumbents. And I know there's a few of them that would love to ride, uh, upright, but they have that leg mobility issue, whether it's through, uh, muscle wasting or being an amputee. But that's a smart idea, honestly. So let's go back to the organization. Um, yeah. How did you come across them? So my dad is friends with a, uh, a retired, medically retired Green Beret who lives up in Fayetteville, who um, was a member of the organization. 
Um, he's, he's blind in one eye, traumatic brain injury. Um, and uh, so he was with the organization from the start. He's uh, done some of the mountain climbing, Kilimanjaro, Aconagua, um, you know, the one out in Washington. Oh, by Brenda. Oh, okay. So, because the, the whole idea is to do the seven summits, which is the seven tallest, seven tallest summits in the world. So he told my dad while I was still, I think, unconscious. He said, I know who to hook your son up with when he gets back to Tampa to help get him into the VA and um, get him set up with prosthetics. I mean, because they do research and that sort of stuff. Because when I retired from the military, I only had like a 10% VA disability rating. And I don't even know why they gave that to me. Probably just because, you know, you're retiring, let's give it to you. Because I found out as long as you have a 10%, a minimum 10%, you can use VA hospitals. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So that's probably why the doctor gave that to me. But, you know, so this injury happened um, non-active duty. But they were, um, so Combat Wounded Veteran Challenge, the founder was um, worked with the chief of prosthetics and um, spinal cord injury at the VA hospital in Tampa. And they, part of this Combat Wounded Veteran Challenges, they do these challenges and they're all tied in with Institutional Review Board approved research for traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress, and prosthetics. And if I get connected with the organization, then I would get kind of the best care and always make sure I kind of get, I was almost going to say a leg up, but that would be. Uh, a, uh, 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 uh. Anyways, I would get um, sort of a little bit more attention as far as prosthetics, because a problem is a lot of People go in and say they want prosthetics and demand them and come to find out they never use them. They don't really ride bicycles or surfboards or whatever. They just want the stuff and they sit in their closets. So especially if it's not a um, active duty related injury. So it's a waste of VA money. So by hooking up with the organization, I would be doing certain things where I'd be proof that I'm using certain prosthetics or I'd be worthy of it. So that's how I got connected. So when I came back to Florida, once I started feeling a little better and I was impatient to get my first prosthetic, that's where I met Dave Olson, retired Navy captain. He used to fly fighter jets and he's the founder. And that's how I got started. And he knew I had a, a master's degree in um, business. And I was a, I'm tight friends with like the mayor of St. Petersburg because we're both puppy raisers for Southeastern Guide Dogs. Um, I knew a bunch of uh, VIPs in the Tampa Bay area for some other 501 charity organizations I worked with. But um, he knew that I knew how to manage budgets and all that junk. So he asked if I would work with them. And that's how I became the uh, chief admin officer. So that's what I've been doing ever since. And that's what the organization does is uh, scuba mountaineering and now sailing challenges 
that are all tied in with research. Which is where I met you through our mutual friend, Laura. Yeah. Um, at the Houston one, which you guys are going to be doing another one of those here in the next couple months. Yeah, uh, middle April. How, okay, so we met in 2019. Then you and I and Laura went and did in, was it, I guess, wow, it was 2020, um, a race out of Miami. Yeah. With a with Magnus, who's a Olympic gold medalist in sailing. Yes. Which was, let's just say there was a little bit of tension on the boat in a good way. We uh, did it's, win. It's intense. <laughs> the what? Say that. Say in, say intensity. Intensity, if yes. Say tension. People are going to think that there was <laughs> some some drama. Like people don't like each other. That wasn't it. It was just no, no, no. no. It was it was it was a good it was a good type of intensity. Yeah. Um. We won the damn thing. I know. That's what I'm saying. We were intense. Yes. So we, uh, as I was getting to know you guys better, you guys are um, fascinated by sailing, I would say. You guys love doing sailing. How did you get into that? And how does that tie into Combat Wounded Veteran Challenge? Well, when I first, well, being on the ocean, I grew up living we used to live our summers in Myrtle Beach. Ocean never bothered me. Hello, Coast Guard. You know, flipping boats in the ocean. Yeah. Those boating was never an issue. Um, my thing was like, eh, there's no motor on this. It's not going to go fast enough for me. Which, by the way, I still feel that way. Um, but that's beside the point. Um, so, but uh, sailing was one of the things. Uh, they were partnered with uh, Warrior Sailing Program, and I, Laura and I still sail with them. Great organization. Um, it's research-backed. And, uh, you know, when I first started with Combat Wounded Veteran Challenge, they said, well, there's a sailing camp in St. Petersburg. We would like you to, to do that sailing camp. And I'm not going to say no, because, you know, I'm now part of the organization. And I did it, and I enjoyed it. And um, apparently I didn't suck at it because we had a competition and I actually made um, the competition team. So I got good enough to compete in the uh, 2.4 meter boat worlds. So went, uh, that was actually here in Florida. Um, competed in the J-Boat Nationals. I'm sorry, there was 2.4 Nationals, the J-Boat Worlds, that was up in Canada. Um, Competed in Sail Week in Charleston. Uh, let's see, good grief. Newport, Rhode Island a bunch of times. Long Island three or four times. Uh, California, Texas, Miami, of course, Miami with you. Been around. So um, there was about a three, two and a half, three-year span where it was like I was off sailing in some sort of competitive event almost every month and a half. Um, not so much now. Right. Um, it's an expensive sport. So even though these boats were always somebody else's boats, and it was usually funded by the organization, as the war's been winding down and people's interests are more into other things, not so much veterans and the care of veterans, they're more interested in, at that time, what, what, what's the president tweeting? What what Kardashian's pregnant now? Um, 
you know, who's woke today? They, they have other priorities than thank you for your service here. Let me donate to your program. So money for all these grassroots organizations, especially the two I worked with, shrunk drastically. So it started getting to where going to these events, the travel, I would have to pay out of my own pocket. And for me to travel about once a month to sailing events, and sailing events are usually in pretty, you know, areas. Newport, Rhode Island, Coconut Grove, certain parts of San Diego, Sanford. It was getting expensive. So, yeah, I don't do it as much. Um, I do the organization now, and it's really maybe once a year. And we really didn't touch on it. And um, you have Bob that's a required travel companion your service dog. So, and I can understand why that, that in itself probably adds a little bit of expense to the trip. It, well, no more or, than food. He doesn't cost me anything. Oh, he good, doesn't good. cost a seat. Oh, he good. No, they're not allowed on seats. He's trained to sit on the floor right between my legs. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't realize that. Um, yeah. They're not allowed on, on furniture or seats, legit service dogs, trained ones. Oh, wait, there's people who fake it? Yeah, they exist. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they don't get on seats. So um, we'll bring it to the home stretch. So after we sailed last year, um, was it last year? No, it was, it was uh, take that back. It was 2019 because it was Columbus Day. Yeah. We, oh, were, yeah. we were all talking about doing another one in February. And then... Congratulations. A year later, almost to the day today, we've been trying to flatten the curve for yeah. two weeks. How has your time been during this whole lockdown pandemic, non-lockdown thing? Well, considering Florida has been one of the more open states, that doesn't mean it's been wide open. People here have still, you know, we have county rules. So they can't override what the state mandates. Um, but there's still, there was still a short period where some businesses were closed. That didn't last long. Um, but it's still been fairly quiet compared to normal. So regardless of things being what level they're opened up, people are still kind of careful, uh, staying home more often wearing masks. So it's kind of quiet out there in the world. So it's been boring, quiet. I work out a lot. I ride my bicycle. Um, I've been doing CrossFit. I used to be a, a regular weight lifter, an anti-CrossFit guy, but I started doing that because they do so many squats that is good for somebody with a fake leg to learn balance and all. That's uh, true. Actually, I love it now. Um, so it was, it was a little weird for me for a few months um, being a loner, but I'm kind of used to it now. How was it? How was your uh, care? Did you have to use the VA or any uh, medical services during the pandemic, during the last year? I, there's been a couple of times where I've gone to prosthetics. Um, they've tried some new sockets on me. So I still go see them. Um, most of my, uh, so if I see, my um, I've seen my uh, primary care doctor twice. 
on a Zoom meeting or Microsoft meeting, I believe it is, whatever the VA uses. And um, so it's been good. Good, good. In, I still go in. I'm also a uh, amputee coalition peer mentor, which is like a VA hospital volunteer. Oh, okay. The VA hospitals were allowed to give vaccines to their employees started in November. They considered us employees. So I was allowed to get my first vac first and second vaccine in um, November. Oh, really? So have you grown any new appendages? Nothing. No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. I, uh, nothing's growing out of my, out of my bolt hole. <laughs> uh, come on, we can water it a little bit more and maybe you'll get something growing. No, so, good. um, I know last year we were planning on doing or combat, not we, but combat wounded veteran challenge is going to do a scuba thing that obviously got canceled. Um, do you see things starting to get back to normal? Obviously we're, you're, you're doing the sailing thing, which I guess is in Galveston. Yeah. Galveston's wide open Florida. Don't forget the scuba thing is um, where we normally stay is on a Navy base. And on that Navy base is where the uh, Green Beret Underwater Operations School is. It's their Green Beret Combat Dive School. These are federal installations. Oh, okay. I didn't they realize are, that. Yeah, they got to go by federal rules. doesn't right. matter what the state says. So there's three, well, there's actually four. Well, I'm going to say three bases in Key West, on Key West Island, and one other, not really a base. It probably was like a naval station at one point but it's like all housing it's pretty nice nice beach so there's a naval air station which has got huge runways yeah i know i know nas key west yeah so there's some so you know the four places well now nobody's allowed to stay on those facilities unless you're active duty even oh, okay. in condos like nobody um the beginning of the pandemic you were but if you had a decent reason, which what we were doing would have been a decent reason, but now nobody is. Um, and so we usually put people up in the condos and you know, with family members on the Naval Air Station and single people in the barracks with the Green Beret students. But now we, we can't. And because we're a poor organization now, we, we can't really afford to put people up in hotels in Key West, right. So we're uh, we're kind of on hold. Um, well, I just I just meant. Do you see the organization getting back to a more normal schedule now that the states well, are starting to lift restrictions? I don't know. I mean, usually we go down the last week of June or second to last week of June. Um, President Biden said something like there'd be a shot in every arm by May. I think that's what he said on his last last week, his uh, press release. Oh yeah, yeah, um, and that maybe we maybe we'll be allowed to have family over for uh, for a couple July. for July fourth. Yeah, it's it's up to them. They make the call on what to do. So it's it's where where are we going to be staying? And what will happen is there's talk where it might be just a few of us from Florida that have been already scuba qualified 
that go down, which is really three or four of us. Yeah. Because that's affordable. So I don't know. As far as uh, the mountaineering, that's been, we've been doing that in Colorado. Um, that's not a very open state. So I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. It, it's good to know that you guys are starting to get back in the swing of things, even if it's just a sailing. Yeah. We, we are definitely trying. It's like as soon as, if you if you leave the door open a crack, we're running through it. Good. So it's it's we're really at the mercy of county, state, and federal regulations. Yeah, I do I do worry that there were some um, other organizations that got shuttered because of restrictions that may not come back and may. No, there's going to be some veterans that are going to be left out in the uh, cold. Not obviously not you guys because you guys are are coming back, but I do feel like there were some local ones that did have to shut down. Possibly, but that's not really holding. We we didn't do a lot and spend a lot of money to begin with. Um, yeah, it's just this COVID thing that's kind of slowing us down right now. I would I was going to say put the brakes on, but we're going sailing, so it it hasn't stopped us. It's just kind of moving our dates around. Yeah, so. and, and I like the idea of uh of April as opposed to hurricane season. Hurricane season. Well, they need to figure that out for Key West, too, because one year they were going to send us down to Key West for a second time, and that was the exact day that Hurricane Irving hit Key West. Ooh. Yeah, we didn't go. So <laughs> we we saw it coming, and we were like, maybe we shouldn't drive down there. Yeah. They're like, we're, you need to be there in two days. And we're like, I don't know. They're like, well, they, know, they don't know where the cones are really going to be. And I'm like, we don't want to be stuck on that little spit of land out in the middle of the ocean called Key West. So yeah. West. I don't feel like Key West has a lot of altitude that you can go get out yeah. of the way either. Yeah. We'd have been we'd have been breathing from our scuba bottles treading water. <laughs> well, on that note, I want to thank you for coming on, man. This has actually been a pretty good conversation. I really enjoyed it. And we've been doing this for two hours and 20 minutes. All right, good. Uh, that went by pretty quick. It does, especially when you're talking to good people. Oh, thank you. And, uh, it's true. You're a good guy. Ah, thank you. Hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah, definitely. We hope to see you in Galveston. Um, I know you had something else planned, but it looks like it's it looks like it's opening up. I'm probably gonna fill out the application today. And I know um I think my buddy got his, so he really he could use it more than I could. He he needs to I, I think oh, that's yeah. what Laura was talking to me about because the, they had a board meeting last night and our application design, everything was approved. And this morning they told me to get it out there. So, and Laura was um, on the highway, stopped for two and a half hours for a flip semi. So I oh. think she just got home and was just blowing up my phone about getting the app out. So that's probably, you'll probably see it as soon as you were done. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.